Today I speak with Lynn Harris, who is a licensed professional counselor in the states of Georgia and Florida in private practice. She's worked in the mental health field since 2000 and in healthcare for over 15 years. Her postgraduate specialty training includes advanced trauma training from the Institute for Advanced Psychotherapy Training and Education, somatic imagery and ego state psychotherapy from the Center for Healing and Imagery, dialectical behavior therapy, EMDR, sensory motor training and training for the treatment of trauma, and sensory motor training for the treatment of attachment and development. Her clinical experience includes a wide range of settings and populations. She has experienced working with young children, adolescents, adults, families, and groups. Prior to private practice, she worked for 10 years as an outpatient family therapist in an adolescent treatment facility and as an addiction counselor, where she was involved in treatment at different levels of care, detox, day treatment, outpatient, and residential. She has extensive experience conducting assessments and leading group therapy. Earlier in her career, she held positions in psychiatric hospital and school settings. In addition to clinical work with clients, she enjoys doing clinical supervision. She's provided supervision for interns seeking their graduate degrees and currently supervises graduate level master's candidates in their practicum work. Prior to becoming a therapist, she worked in healthcare management and earlier in international relations with a focus on former Soviet countries. She is also an artist. Welcome, Lynn Harris. I'm Lynn Harris. I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I'm uh, licensed in Florida. I'm also licensed in Virginia and Georgia. And I uh, am a specialist in treating complex trauma and dissociative disorders. I am in a full-time private practice. I have a practice in Ponte Vedra, Florida and St. Mary's, Georgia. So some days in one location, some days in the other. And I in addition to that, I have been uh, doing some consulting work with Voices for Florida, which is a nonprofit organization. They're based in Tallahassee, and they've been doing a lot of really innovative work in the mental health field. And in the past couple years, they started an initiative to work with survivors of trafficking, so children and young adults up to the age of 24 who are uh, being trafficked to help get them out of the trafficking relationships and to provide resources for them in whatever way they are willing to accept them. And um, that's been really interesting. So what I've been doing for for them is I uh, help them with the trauma piece. So when you are working with, obviously, victims of trafficking, there's a lot you're dealing with people with complex trauma and in addition to that they employ survivor mentors so their model is a clinician a survivor mentor and a regional advocate all work together as a team and the survivor mentors are all adults who have come through their own experience with being trafficked and so i've been helping them put together how you support the survivor mentors and um how you work with the children who are being trafficked and what you look for, like how you work on the trauma piece when someone's maybe not even ready for treatment, but you have to kind of be aware of that stuff. So that's been sort of a sidebar thing I've been doing for the past two years. And I also 
uh, spend time um, professionally presenting at conferences and um, and um, writing about uh, basic things related to the what I do. I, for example, I just um, did an article for um, Trauma Psychology News that will be forthcoming, and it's a case study with a client that I work with who has dissociative identity disorder. So I try to be... Uh, really as active in the field as I can in those different ways. That's amazing. And I didn't realize that we had some of those layers in common or some common experiences. I'm licensed in Oklahoma and Kansas. And so that's, it's a very rural area, but because of the, where the cities lie really just geographically, I have to be licensed in both states to be able to work. And so you're the first person I've met who is also licensed in other states. I know there's more out there, but you're the first person I talked to that has shared that experience. Yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of an interesting thing, you know. And then I have, I still have some clients. Like I do some um, telemedicine sessions, and I still have some clients from Virginia. That so, you know, it's uh, and more and more these days, you know, there's that ability to have a broader reach and uh in terms of providing services it doesn't it's not all just in in person and in people coming into an office and um but then there's that tricky stuff like as you know about how you have to each state has different requirements for licensure and all that so right and different timelines for turning everything in and renewal yes exactly it's sort of a lot to juggle do you have any clients that travel a long way to meet with you uh i well, um, yes, I, <laughs> so I have, I have had clients, so in St. Saint, Saint Mary's, Georgia is a, just for uh, the record, is a small, small coastal town in southeast Georgia, so the south, most southeast part of Georgia, like right across the river from Florida, and fairly rural area around it, and so I have had people that have come from Savannah to meet with me there, so it's like an hour and a half each way. I've had people who have come from more rural parts of Georgia to meet with me there, and then in Florida, I have people who come up every week from St. Augustine to Ponte Vedra, which is near Jacksonville, and I have people who have come from Orlando to meet with me just three hours away so people will I have had some people who will travel distances for appointments wow the the other thing that we have in common or or that I was surprised that I actually didn't know about you was the trafficking piece and we my husband and I were foster parents for many years and we had our oldest daughter was trafficked here from Honduras and oh, really? so we had some unique trauma issues with her, um, mm. or she had the trauma experiences, but working with her was unique, different than other trauma I had experienced in before that. And, mm. you know, we, I mean, we helped her get her green card and get established on her own and get her GED and all of those things. But those were functional pieces. And the trauma pieces she had were so specific and so unique. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's very unique. It's um, and so it sounds like there was a learning curve for you with that, like how you how you address it, how you worked with her with that. Right. It got it got me um, in the field, I guess. And we're where we live in Oklahoma and Kansas. There, there's a pretty heavy route of trafficking, and so 
um, I've been able since then to get more training and learn more about it. But that was my introduction to it. So, so do you see are a lot of the people you work with people who have been trafficked? More and more. Mm-hmm. More and more, the more people become aware of it and the more it's exposed and the more people are able to ask for help, I'm getting more referrals for that for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it is kind of an amazing thing to me how it's, it just feels to me like recently, like maybe within the past six months to a year, there's a lot more attention being paid to trafficking in the media and just in people's sort of general awareness. Um, I, a lot of times people feel like have this idea that trafficking is something that's just happening, you know, at the very fringes or only in other countries, but they're not even realizing there's so much of it in the United States. And I am surprised to hear that in Oklahoma and Kansas, that that's a route where people come through. It's a big thing here. And I also think there's an aspect of sort of understanding how it's defined and what counts as trafficking and and not it has its own stigma i think and as people become more educated they are able to identify cases differently and earlier and intervene differently than before and so i think it's making a difference i hope i hope it's making a difference i know i hope so too and i think a lot of it is training um people who tend to have contact with people, the first contact with people who are being trafficked, like police officers or schools or hotel employees, like there's really a lot of need for education, like across all sectors, so people can spot it and know know what to do. Right, right. So you specialize in treating trauma and dissociation. Can you tell me how you explain dissociation to new clients who are just learning about it? Um, yes, I can tell you. So what I explain to people is that dissociation is really um, a, a mental ability that, that everybody has and that everybody uses to some extent. So even uh, there's, the, there's a spectrum of dissociation. So on the low end, it's things like sort of daydreaming, the way like a kid would daydream during math class and sort of miss part of what the teacher was saying. And uh, it progresses up through, you know, the way a professional might, you know, performer, let's say, like before they step, when they step on stage, you have to kind of push out some information out of your conscious awareness so you can do what you need to do. Or like first responders use a form of dissociation when they roll up on the scene of an accident, for example. On up through post-traumatic stress, complex post-traumatic stress, and uh, on the higher end, dissociative disorders and, um, and dissociative identity disorder. So what I explain to people is that what the spectrum indicates is the frequency of how, you know, how frequently someone is employing that a mental ability to sort of be, check out, to be present but not be present at the same time, the frequency and the uh, intensity of it, meaning that how much uh, there's almost like an amnesia aspect to it where you lose time or you can't remember something. Um, so... I usually explain to people how um, everybody employs the ability 
to dissociate, meaning to mentally, to physically be present, but mentally go away a little bit or a lot. And that it's really important to normalize it and to understand that the way people ex, you know, wind up on the far end, extreme end of the spectrum with dissociative disorders is because they had to use more of it and earlier in their life. So usually having, it indicates that there was a lot of duress or stress in a child's life because all children are naturally, it's very normative for children to use dissociation and usually around the point of adolescence, we start to use it less because the part of our brain that can mitigate circumstances has developed more by around the age of, let's say, 12. But um, when a dissociative disorder is present in somebody, it means not that there's something wrong with them, but that they had a certain life circumstance that really required using a lot, a lot of the brain's natural ability to disconnect for chunks of time and that it gets kind of codified in our brain. And when we become adolescents, instead of using other coping mechanisms, we continue to rely on dissociation so that it gets really uh, automatic as even into adulthood. Um, and that's kind of generally how I describe it. So you really normalize it for them? Yes, because I, I really believe that uh, it's it's true that it's something that every, you know, that it's not something, um, it's not an illness. It's not something like a lot of times people will say things to me, like they don't tell anybody about the fact that they dissociate. Even They might not be aware of it or they might know it, but they don't talk about it because they feel like it's really weird or that um, it's crazy. Like a lot of times people will say to me that, uh, I'm just crazy, and I insist gently but firmly that they are not crazy, <laughs> that it's a learned thing to rely so heavily on dissociation, and then it gets wired in the brain, so it becomes sort of like on autopilot, and it seems out of outside of our control, but it, but it isn't, and it might seem really weird, but it also is not that, so I really, really um, emphasize how it's not at all crazy, that it's actually kind of this amazing thing that our brain can do. And clearly there was a need for a lot of dissociation, which is really never any child's fault. So I heard you speak in Florida. Can can you explain what you said or, or just again in your own words, tell me or explain about the difference between functional dissociation and maladaptive dissociation? So, um, functional dissociation is when, again, like, um, uh, let me think of a good example. So, if someone is a firefighter, right, and they are called to a scene of where, you know, a house is on fire and they have to put the house out. Um, that you can't, there's so much, think of like, there's so much sensory input. I mean, I'm not a firefighter, <laughs> so I don't really know this firsthand, but think about, I think about it in terms right. of like, 
there's so much sensory input, right? There's like so much happening all around you. There's a lot of sound. There's a lot of visual stimulation. There's a lot of urgency. Like things are really, you have to be able to like focus and be on it and do the things you've been trained to do and you have to do it quickly. And so you, you have to push out a lot of sensory information in order to do that, to get your brain to just like focus and do the task that you need to do. So to me, or like a, an actor walking on the stage where you are doing a performance, like you can't take in all the, in all the sensory information, looking at it, all the faces, like hearing the sounds in the audience, like really, you know, you have to really push a lot of information out of your conscious awareness so you can do what you need to do. So to me, that's what I mean when I say functional dissociation. Okay. And maladaptive dissociation is when, uh, like I was saying before, it, we it, some stimuli, some some circumstance sets in motion that process of just too like kind of like it's like you just are not there anymore, or you're still like maybe walking and talking or looking at someone or carrying on with whatever you're doing, but you're not there. You're using another part of yourself to manage the interaction. And what makes it maladaptive is that it's uh, not completely, not completely, um, uh, it's not a, it's not a life or death situation necessarily. You know, it's, um, it could be a much more subtle stimuli that sets that in motion and then the other part of it is that sometimes when I mean not sometimes always when we're not connected to our frontal cortex that's the part of our brain that you know rational thought and problem solving um, sequencing like then when if we're not really fully connected to that part of our brain which is always true when we're you know, dissociating a lot, it means that we're, like, a lot of things can happen. We're not, it makes someone very vulnerable. So that's where a lot of negative consequences can come from if someone stays in a dissociative state a lot of the time. It also inhibits someone's ability to just do day-to-day things, you know, and, um, and it's also uh, what causes a lot of repeated trauma, because again, if it's a situation where it requires that you act in some way or you're self-protective in some way, and your part of your brain that governs those kinds of decisions isn't available to you, like really anything can happen. And um, a lot of times what happens is people have just repeated trauma after trauma if they're not really present enough to like take care of themselves, so to speak. So in those cases, the brain is literally not online to help. Yes, the part of our brain that the, well, lots of parts of our brain are not fully available to us when we're really heavily dissociating, but the part that is kind of the, um, inhibits impulses, um, the problem-solving, more analytic, more rational thought, the part that governs all of that is not fully online, and neither is the hippocampus, which is the part that 
stores narrative memory. So that's why when someone dissociates a lot, like there's little bits of maybe bits and pieces of memory available, but not a full narrative memory. Sometimes people have no memory available to them. It's not that it's not getting recorded, because it, it does, it gets recorded more on like a body level or an emotional level, but very often, I mean, do you find this is true, like with the people you work with, like that they all, people will say, uh, you know, I know this happened, but I don't really remember any of it, or so-and-so told me that I did X, Y, Z, but I don't remember. Wow. So how does that play into seeing symptoms as strategies rather than pathologies? That was the other thing I heard you talk about in Florida. Yeah, so it's, I mean, if you, the way I think about it is that it, it's a way, dissociation is a way that we have to protect ourselves when whatever is going on is so overwhelming that we can't process it in the moment, right? So when we can't make sense of things in the moment, we can't, um, it's just uh, either too frightening or it's overwhelming in some way, but we still have to like get through the moment. We still have to survive the moment somehow. So it's a very protective uh, strategy to be able to just kind of go offline for a little while and then come back. And especially, it's especially uh, strategic for children because when, you know, when we're children, we're physically small and we also don't, our brain is not fully developed until, I mean, it doesn't completely develop until we're like 26 or 27. So if you're like four, five, six, like you're, you're working out of, you know, a, a, a brain that's growing very quickly, but it's not fully developed. So you have very much fewer resources intellectually and emotionally and physically you're smaller. So like, what are the options there when there's something that feels like life or death or is actually life or death or is really overwhelming? There's not a lot of options, right? So dissociation is a really helpful strategy because it helps survive things that they can't make sense of, that they can't function in, and they just have to get through it. So I think it's, you know, I tend to think of it as like our in those moments, and especially in children where you can't, you know, when you're bigger and stronger, you can fight, you can flee, you can uh, maybe um assert yourself in other ways that you cannot when you're physically small. And also there's a big power differential, like a child to an adult, for example, like the power is not with the child in those circumstances. So again, dissociation is a strategy that allows um, anyone, children and adults, to kind of survive the moment when we don't really have another way of doing that. So even with children, well, you mentioned the frontal cortex. What is happening in the brain? I I know, like, I've read about the amygdala and and these pieces, but what's happening in the brain? How do you explain that during dissociation? Well, you know, that's a a really interesting question. And um, 
there have been some studies done, a lot of studies done, and I, uh, so there's a, there's, we know something about what's happening in the brain when someone's actually dissociating, like they've done studies where they do scans, you know, where they can see which parts of the brain are lit up and which parts of the brain are more dormant, and, um, and I should preface this by saying I am not a, a neuro biologist or neuropsychologist I just am really interested in this stuff so I <laughs> I like I think about that all the time I'm like what is really actually happening in our brain when we're dissociating so what I what I know and by right right is that the frontal cortex gets dimmer like there's less activity in the frontal cortex there's less activity in the hippocampus and the amygdala is very active so the amygdala is the fire alarm part of our brain it signals our nervous system very 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 quickly when there's a threat or danger present so even if it's perceived and it's not actually anything threatening or dangerous happening it can still fire and what the amygdala does is it sets uh uh it sets in motion the whole sympathetic nervous system cascading thing where signals are sent to the brain and throughout the body and chemical neurochemicals get released to help us to help us stir up first for fight or flight and if we can't fight or flee then there's a free there can be a freeze response or a submit response in the body and and that means different neurochemicals get excreted but also once the threat has passed if our nervous system gears up for defense and which is its function and then the threat the perceived threat is over or it's passed then different neurochemicals get excreted in the brain to help our body slow back down again so slow the heart rate and breathing back down sometimes there's like a wet down in the muscles like a shaking that happens or a gut a feeling in our gut um because all of that gets uh affected by um by the sympathetic nervous system doing its thing. So when our, so the part of our brain that gets really active is our amygdala during an event where we feel like there either is a real or perceived threat. And then there's this cascading effect in the body, the nervous system gearing up for defense. And then the other thing that happens is that, that sometimes when there is a lot of trauma, our body, our nervous system gets um, acclimated to being dysregulated. So, in other words, the amygdala is all firing, right? Instead of just kind of turning on and off when we need it, it's just kind of, it gets sensitive, very sensitized. A lot of trauma. It throughout life causes often, I see this all the time, where people have very, very sensitized amygdala that signals, either constantly is signaling, you know, danger, 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 or uh, when it gets triggered, it just is really hard to turn it off, right? So that is very taxing on one's body and uh, can be really exhausting and 
it's very unsettling. Like, it's just like, you know, if your body is always signaling you danger, it's very hard to rest. It's very hard to feel calm. It's very hard to think straight. Um, so that's, that's a part, that whole, the amygdala and the whole effect it has over time is very profound in people with trauma and dissociation. Is that actually impacting perception or limiting perception in some way then? Like perception about? Well, just in general, if it's no longer an accurate filter because it's overworking or underworking, which I know simplifies it, but. No, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it does because it's, it's like you're getting misinformation all the time, you know? So, um it's it increases things like um feeling like you have to be hyper vigilant even if you there's nothing happening um impulsivity like uh it just kind of sometimes like a lot of there's a lot of um uh suspicious kind of thoughts and feelings of a lot of times it'll just make people want to withdraw from any social interaction because it's just too much you know it's just like too too much to deal with all the time and if they can't turn it off it just a lot of times people will choose to withdraw and become more socially isolated and or the other thing that happens all the time with chronic nervous system dysregulation is um, substance abuse so I mean, this is something that is very, very um, frequent is the combination of trauma and substance use because if we don't feel like it's in our control to regulate our our body, then we'll, you know, turn to chemical substances of one kind or another to help us do it. So uh, that's another complicating factor is if our if the perception is that either all people are dangerous versus like this one person is not safe for me to be around or I'm always feeling shut down because our nervous system either speeds up or shuts down as a defense mode and shutting down. I think I've talked about this in Florida too, like is equally a defense. So the shutdown can be like feeling numb or disconnected or sort of zoned out not really there more passive kind of can't feel much or think straight like that's that's where a lot of people like live all the time is down down there and that and again like dissociation is part of that and so sometimes what happens is people will use substances to help bring a little more stimulation into their nervous system or so that they can feel something because feeling nothing is that does not feel good so does it affect people's perception yes it's kind of like you move through the world with this anticipation that something bad is going to happen and in this like constant state of readiness you know for for something how do you how do you approach treatment for that do you have a stage approach or a phases or you just take one piece at a time that's presented as it's presented or 
it's complicated, right? Because you're dealing with many things on many different levels all at once. But I, I do take a staged approach in treatment. I think uh, I follow what. Um, so there's so it'll come to me. So staged approach in treatment where you have stages of trauma recovery. In the first stage, it's um, Judith Herman. That's what that's it. Judith Herman in 1992, as far as I know, was the first person who really talked about the treatment of trauma in this way, where you have to start with safety and stabilization. And safety and stabilization means both someone's physical and emotional safety, so not in an abusive situation, have adequate housing, have adequate income, have some means of support, but also safety in the body. Because if our, if the what the person is used to is this chronic, constant, kind of normalized sense of I'm in danger all the time, and the nervous system is sending that message all the time, it's really hard to process anything or to really do any real work in treatment. So one of the first tasks in treatment, the way I approach it is to teach some, first of all, to do the education about why that is happening. And to, again, like you said earlier, not to depathologize the symptoms, right? The symptoms are telling the story but it's not pathology. It's a normal body response to chronic stress. Like if you take any animal and you put them in a circumstance where there's chronic stress, their body is going to adapt to that circumstance. So uh, a lot of psychoeducation about that, a lot of normalizing and depathologizing the symptoms that are present. But then there has to be some actual ability, we have to build the capacity and the ability to self-regulate that stuff. So that means building the ability to observe when someone is either triggered or what their body is telling them, and not just observe it, but then have actual practical skills. And I tend to use ones that are both cognitive and somatically based. I find that you can't just work on the cognitive level you have to have also somatically based skill set to self-regulate that's like that's kind of the first stage in trauma recovery is establishing safety and stability and that means both in some you know externally and internally like to be able to restore a sense of like okay i'm safe in this moment and it might be fleeting at first it might just be like moments of feeling that way not a sustained sense of safety, but that's what we work towards. Stage two is actually kind of processing um, some aspects of the trauma. It's no, I don't ever find that it's necessary to start from day one and say, and then when I was one, and then one and a half. Like, you don't have to, it's not working through the narrative of what happened, although certainly Sometimes people want to share the narrative of what happened, but not really necessary for recovery to go through the story. It's really more important that I find that there are always a few really significant memories, whether it's a narrative memory or it's just a felt sense or uh, a little sliver 
of a memory that keeps popping up because there's always the ones that are more intrusive than right. others or that have more of an impact for some reason. And so in the second phase, the goal is to actually try to metabolize what happened and metabolize the trauma so it's not, it can get kind of um, integrated into this is part of my story, it doesn't define me, but it's part of my story and to have, start to have a sense of separation from past and present where something can be remembered rather than relived. So reliving means that when we think about it, we have all the attendant reactions emotionally, physiologically, as if it were happening now. So we, that, that is, you know, part of the intrusive symptoms with trauma. And so in phase two, what we work towards is having the ability to let things kind of lie down in the past more. Remember how I said the hippocampus is the part of the brain that puts the date and timestamp on things. But remember if we're dissociating or if we're in the middle of something that's really overwhelming, the hippocampus starts to go offline. So there's no date and timestamp on a lot of these these memories or these experiences. And so they show up in these as flashbacks, really like little slivers of memory that work their way into the present. And so rather than constantly reliving little bits of memory, what we want to do is be able to identify that as it's in the past now. This is not happening now, even if sometimes it feels like it. And so working to process through what happened, but also the differentiation that that is something that is firmly in the past. Like that's a really key part of the second stage. And then the third stage is really kind of coming to terms with your post-traumatic self, like figuring out like who you are now without having to be preoccupied all the time with the um, all the trauma, like to sort of be able to make meaning for yourself and your life in the here and now, to have healthy intimacy, to decide what sorts of things are meaningful to you that you want to maybe pursue personally or professionally. So really more about making meaning for oneself in the present without everything being dictated by um, the old stuff because it's very, very preoccupying when there's both a lot of dissociation happening and a lot of intrusive symptoms happening and those people have both of those just takes up all one's energy and your day is all about managing that stuff. And so if that stuff gets quieter and can lie down, like then what? Then what do you want to spend your time on? How do you want to, what do you want to direct your energy towards? And so that's stage three. I know that you also talked about sensory motor. What, how do those skills redirect the attention to the body as a resource instead of the body being in the way of doing that work. Yeah. So, so sensory motor psychotherapy is a, um, a body oriented form of talk therapy. So it's not hands on, although I think some sensory motor therapists are sometimes incorporating touch into their work, but I do not. Um, so it's, it's talk, it's a form of talk therapy, but it's where you're, 
you're incorporating information all the time from your what your body's telling you, right? So the first obstacle there, of course, is that for a lot of trauma survivors, uh, you know, what was safer was to never be in one's body. So it's it's a tall order to start trying to talk to someone about trying to even to notice anything. Like what's your what's your breathing like right now? What do you notice, you know, what sensation can you feel? Like it's even that in the beginning is like not you have to kind of work we have to work our way towards even being able to tolerate that. Sunscreen motor says is we don't want to just pay attention to thoughts or cognitions or try to draw insight and analysis. Like that's helpful, but we need to know all the information that's coming from from our body. So slight movement, um, in you know, an impulsive instinct, uh, an action that tendency that is not doesn't. You can, we can feel it, but it doesn't get acted out. Like all those things are part of sensory motor and incorporating that into into the work. So the way that our bodies can be a resource is uh, well, it's a lot of ways, but like a for as a fairly simple example, remember how I was saying earlier that overcoming that chronic dysregulation in the body and so let's say someone is uh, chronically hyper aroused in their nervous system that means that there's like a lot of a lot of nervous system activity right a lot of arousal in the nervous system so uh, tension in the muscles um, racing thoughts heart rate like all the autonomic nervous system functions like breathing and heart rate are usually Heart rate's usually elevated, breath may be even more shallow, like there's like a, sometimes just a feeling of pervasive restlessness or, um, so to work with that using, as using the body as a resource is um, to focus on grounding and orienting. So grounding could be anything that kind of helps you be more connected to your present moment physical environment. So as an example, sometimes I'll ask someone if I can see that they're dissociating and having a hard time in the session is we'll all just work to bring their attention as much as I can back into the present moment. So listing things they see around them in the room. I might say, you know, tell me five green things you see in the room right now. Five sounds you hear right now five things you feel, not physically, but like tactically, like what's the texture of the couch you're sitting on? Can you feel your toes and your shoes? Like, so using the, you know, the connection to the physical environment as a way to reground and reorient to the present moment, or even something really simple like turning one's head to one side and noticing what you see on the right side and then turning your head to the left side and seeing what you see on the left side. Another example of like a, your body is a somatic resource is um, posture. So um, if someone tends to go into more of a 
collapsed posture when they feel hypo aroused, which is on the low end, right? So that's the shut down, kind of low energy, disconnected sort of state. Right. So sometimes I'll ask someone to just, if it's comfortable, I mean, like I really have to know my person well, like I wouldn't just uh, do this without knowing someone who can handle it. Is I, you know, I might ask them to just like first of all make sure they're really present in the room, and then just bring a little bit more, a little bit like to sit up just a little bit more. You know what I mean? Just to bring a little bit of postural support. Because when we engage our core muscles, when we sit up a little straighter, it changes the way we interact with our people and and our physical space. And so sometimes that can really help. Um, someone feel more like solid in themselves in the moment so not just grounding but also really being aware of the visceral experience in the moment as part of the grounding exactly like really using your senses but also your physical like like physical body like something even simple like um uh, pressing your feet into the floor like most of the time we're not thinking about that right like while I'm talking to you I'm not really thinking about what my feet are doing and if I shift my attention to my feet and I just ever so slightly press my feet into the floor I can feel the solidity of the ground underneath my feet and become aware of like my feet and my shoes I can feel how the gravity is like holding me down, which is a really cool thing, and how the earth is pressing back up against my feet when I press them down into the earth. And uh, it might sound dumb, but like when you do that, it's like there's just more of a, this like really quick visceral connection to like my physical body in this space in time. Thank you for explaining that. You're welcome. Yeah, so sensory motor is probably the thing I use the most, the tool, like that's what I use the most when I'm working with complex trauma and dissociation. Um, I know there's there's never one thing in treatment, you know, um, you have to have a lot of different tools in your toolbox, I find. So what if, um, how about if I close out with kind of a, a funny anecdote? That would be lovely. <laughs> so I, so I have someone I've I've been working with for a couple years, and um, this is someone who is in their early forties, very severe history of trauma as a child and as a young adult, and who has um, dissociative identity disorder, and is doing really really well. Like she's worked very very hard. In therapy and one of the things I just wanted to share with you is that we just uh, came up one time with this funny catchphrase that we there was a one time she was uh, she has a regular routine on the weekends where she goes to like Dunkin Donuts and picks up donuts for herself and her son and her partner and her partner has this very special request and they've always honored it and one time she went in to get the donuts on a usual Saturday and the person for whatever reason behind the counter said nope we are not can't do that and she described to me how in that moment her body went into this complete 
an utter sensation of terror. And she froze and she dissociated. And it took like a, a couple of days to kind of recover. And when we were talking about it, um, we were exploring kind of somatically what was the response, you know, of going in like full. She could feel the sensation of terror in her body. She could feel that she was frozen. Um, she knew that she was dissociating, but she couldn't do anything about it. And so we worked on uh, starting from the sensation, like what first we worked on grounding and coming back into the moment and then to explore the sensation of fear as just sensation because she could at the same time feel it but also use her present moment adult self to to notice like there's not actually an emergency here and then I said yeah it's just a donut and she laughed and she said it's that's right it's just a, it's just a donut and so now whenever there's something we're working on and she can feel that sort of nervous system response and it's a really intense one that's our way of differentiating that you know that old learned response defense and terror even when it's not something that's life-threatening and so we we, we laugh about it all the time <laughs> And we apply it to all these different circumstances. And she'll be like, yeah, it's not life or death. It's just a donut. And I'll be like, that's right. It's just a donut. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so that's, um, we even thought about getting t-shirts made. So it says, like, the idea was to put, like, I don't know how we would do this, but, like, maybe trauma survivor on the back and on the front. It says, it's just a donut. That's pretty funny. It's so true that feeling though when something finally clicks of that understanding and being able to finally hold both at once. Yes, and that is really, a, that's exactly right. That's like such a, a big moment to experience that. That's powerful. And I love that it came with donuts. That's great. I know. <laughs> so whenever, I always picture like for some reason a, a donut with pink sprinkle, no, pink frosting and rainbow sprinkles. Right. There you go. That's pretty fancy. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you for talking to me today. You are welcome, Emma. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Sure. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. I really, this has been a great experience for me. So thank you for inviting me. I'm grateful. Thank you very much. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.